Hey, this is Elliot Powers, and here's something I've always wanted to say. Previously on Areas of Agreement. Urban rural is one of the most prominent fault lines in American politics. There's a difference in culture. There's a difference in political leanings. There's a difference in the levels of racial, religious, and ethnic diversity, the levels of foreign-born residents. There's a number of different topics to where we would think differently just because of where we live, just because of our zip code. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the urban-rural divide. People you know, whose urban identity is very important to them or their rural identity and who come to form grievances on the basis of place, grievances that are fundamentally geographic. If we have this increasing hostility, if we continue to view people who live in different types of communities, who have different political views as sort of the other and as the enemy in some sense, we're really not gonna be able to solve any of the societal issues that we're facing. If you can bring together people to learn from one another, build relationships, and take action together in pursuit of a shared goal, you will increase levels of trust. We're oftentimes not as divided as we think we are if we get into a deeper conversation, and, and we choose our subject wisely as well. So what are the issues? that can bring people together across the urban-rural divide. I can think of a lot of things that would unite people no matter where they live. Year-round NFL football, or how about free same-day delivery for everything online, or even a week-long federal holiday for Thanksgiving. Those are the kind of fixes that would make everyone happy, but they still wouldn't address systemic problems plaguing our country. There are plenty of social issues that impact all communities, the question is, which issues can people talk about constructively in a way that allows them to reach some consensus about the problem, the root causes, and possible solutions? Put another way, on which issues can people find areas of agreement? I asked that question to Joe Bubman. As you may recall from episode one, he's the executive director of Urban Rural Action, the nonpartisan organization that promotes urban-rural collaboration. And Joe says no issue is off-limits. There's an opportunity for movement, action, progress on any issue. It might be racial injustice, it might be economic hardship, it might be transportation or housing or the environment or education. And we allow people to form groups within our program with other people who want to work on the same issue. That program, the one I'm a part of, is called Uniting for Action America. All of us in the program, we're really testing Joe's theory that no issue is too complex or too contentious to address. We're tackling topics like racial and economic equality and trust in media. But in this episode, I want to focus on just one topic that one group in the program is addressing that literally brings people together all over the country for all sorts of occasions. Hi, this cookie monster about food. It's the thing that makes my favorite Sesame Street character salivate. The thing we grow, ship, prepare, sell, and eat in massive quantities. That food, food, food. Food might be the ideal topic for people living in cities, suburbs, and rural areas to unite around. 
food is so basic. It is so essential. So many of our cultural norms and celebrations and, and family moments are built around the sharing of food. You know, everyone eats. That's Randall Amster, co-director of environmental studies at Georgetown University. He worked with Urban Rural Action to create a service learning class on environmental and food justice that we'll hear more about later. Food justice means that everyone has a right to access healthy, locally grown, and culturally appropriate food, and that food system workers make a living wage. It's a movement that can bring together unusual allies. Food becomes a cross-cutting issue that sometimes defies what we think of as the demographic or political divides in this country, which is very binary sometimes, where we sort of separate urban and rural and we separate blue and red states. But this sort of defies that, and food becomes actually a piece of connection. These connections, they're often based on a shared concern that people's basic needs aren't being met. Lack of access to food. It's a real problem in a variety of places. Here's Joe again. Food issues bring people together across the urban and rural divide because tens of millions of people in our country are experiencing hunger, regardless of where they live. Joe says the negative consequences of this problem exist in all types of communities. Students struggle to pay attention in school because they don't have nutritious food at home. People experience poor health outcomes as a result of not consuming nutritious food. And the causes of this problem exist across urban and rural communities, whether that's food deserts and people not being able to access nutritious food in proximity to where they live, or economic hardship that prevents them from being able to afford nutritious food. To put some numbers on this problem, 13.7 million U.S. households, or roughly 10.5%, were food insecure at some point during 2019. That's according to data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Food insecurity means households were uncertain of having or unable to buy enough food to meet the needs of people living there. The problem is most common in urban and rural parts of the U.S. About 12% of households in cities in non-metro areas are food insecure, compared to roughly 8% in suburban and exurban areas. Food insecurity and food injustice are ideal issues for people in urban-rural action programs to address. Lack of access to food impacts all communities. Everyone eats, as Randall put it. Or at least everyone should have the right to eat. It seems like an uncontroversial position. One that can transcend the normal divisions in our country. And if you're trying to mobilize a group to take action on an issue, it feels like you're starting on second base if you have this level of consensus. But is that too Pollyannish? Is food justice a divisive issue? Joe doesn't think so. Food justice is not divisive. And I think it's not divisive in part because the political discourse around food tends to focus on the underlying causes of food insecurity, things like lack of education or economic hardship or lack of transportation. Joe says food is widely recognized as a basic right. And therefore, there's a sense that we can all come together, regardless of our political views and where we live, to ensure that everyone in our community is able to access healthy food. The same question I asked Joe, I put it to two people on the Uniting for Action America food team. Is food access a divisive issue? I don't see it as divisive, at least as education or healthcare. You know, it's not the top issue that we see in debates, right? So I think there is more commonality than other issues. That's Greta Zaro. She works on a community farm in upstate New York. 
Greta says not everyone on the food team is in lockstep, but there is agreement that food insecurity and food injustice are systemic problems. The half dozen or so people on her team have already spent more time discussing food issues than most people ever do. Shanae Simon, an independent consultant and researcher who lives outside of Memphis, says food issues generally don't get much attention. I don't know that it is talked enough about to become divisive, right? I think if it were talked about more, there would be an opportunity to have like different sides. I just don't think it's talked about enough. Here again is Randall, the Georgetown professor. Maybe because people sometimes do perceive it as being mundane. It's just food. It's available everywhere. And yet it's not. And so when we dig just beneath the surface, I think it really does expose some very important issues from human rights all the way up to climate change. Randall says anytime you talk about justice and you want it to actually mean something, then it can become contentious. Because then you're interrogating structures of power. You're interrogating the distribution or lack thereof in terms of the equities involved in the larger society. You're interrogating the ways that lobbying and corporate interests hold sway over a great swath of the food system. So it does raise a lot of issues that I think can be contentious, you know, including at the uh, urban and rural scales, you know, when you get it deeper into the demographics of where that maldistribution is and it starts to correlate with race, class and other factors. Interrogating everything, getting into the weeds, is exactly what people who work with urban-rural action get to do. How do they do it? And what can we learn from their experiences? More on that after this. The food team was assembled over the summer. And I wish I could say they all got together over wine and cheese on a farm somewhere to kick off the program. But no, it was on Zoom, like everything else during the pandemic. like... <laughs> That's the arguments in different directions. Yeah, I mean. And when they started meeting each other in early fall and talking about food insecurity, they realized that they need to pick an even narrower problem to address. I would usually just tell you what the problem is and skip ahead in the story to the moment when the team started working on the solution through some sort of group project. But early on in the program we're all in, Joe said something to everyone that stuck with me. The process, it's just as important as the product. So I want to embrace the process. Here goes. Urban-rural action has a very specific way of helping teams deliberate. The first major objective, defining the problem. For the food team, the brainstorming stage was a bit messy. Sorry, I couldn't resist a food pun. The messiness is part of the process. When people from diverse backgrounds talk about complex, systemic issues, it's natural not to immediately unite around a single problem. And that's exactly what happened here. The team was really good at diagnosing problems, like food waste, the prevalence of unhealthy food, and corporations putting profits over consumer well-being. I had team members record their deliberations. I mean, they're all so good. It's hard to pick, and I wonder, is that... And you can hear the difficulty they had settling on one problem. Okay, that's tough. They're going to say, Marsha, what's the one... Problem that you want to concentrate on. Some of the problems seem too daunting, too big, too complex to take on in a series of 90-minute Zoom meetings spread out over months. I get caught up or afraid of of the issues because I'm like, I don't even know how to start uh, dealing with. It could be a really exciting thing to think about, like incentives and food systems with all of us being in different places of like, I mean, that's going to be like way harder to figure out what sort of project we'd want to do, but there could be something interesting. We did do something on something so big and broad 
we couldn't really get down to a solution, you know. Um, After several meetings, the food team settled on a succinct problem statement. Here it is. Drum roll, please. In the United States, 30 to 40% of food is wasted. That estimate, in case you're wondering, comes from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It's staggering to think just how much of the food supply in this country goes to waste. In just one year, 133 billion pounds and $161 billion worth of food that could feed families is sent to landfills, among other places. Getting rid of all that food is incredibly costly. So the problem is clear, and after considerable discussion, so is the food team's problem statement. The next step was equally challenging. Mapping out the causes and effects of food waste. Here's Joe, in a video he recorded, explaining how this part of the process works. Hey, Uniting for Action America, we are going to be completing a problem tree analysis. The problem tree sounds like something you'd be forced to do at a corporate retreat, but it's actually quite useful as a way to analyze causes and effects of complex problems. Step one is to identify the core problem that's the trunk of our metaphorical tree. The problem, as you just heard, is the vast amount of food waste in our country. It's the trunk, though in reality, it's text written on a white sticky note pasted in the center of a digital canvas. And step two is to lay out the various effects or negative consequences of the problem. Those are the branches of our tree. The branches are text written on pink sticky notes. They're hovering above the problem statement, connected by arrows. The effects of food waste are things like environmental destruction, lost opportunities to feed the hungry, and lost profits for businesses all along the food chain. Once we've done that, we want to look at the various causes of the problem, both direct causes and underlying causes. Those are the roots of the tree. Those roots are written on yellow sticky notes below the problem statement. There are a lot of causes of food waste. Overproduction of food, lack of food portion options at restaurants, incentives for food growers to throw away low value crops rather than sell them at a loss. Those examples are all about the people and companies that produce food. This problem tree, it also has a lot about consumers. Here's Greta, the food team member we heard from earlier, giving a recap during a recent meeting. I think on the board, we see several points that are related to that in terms of consumer confusion, consumers throw away perfectly safe food, stigma over non-perfect food, stigma over ugly produce. And we heard this multiple times, so I think that makes sense to focus on. And that's what the food team decided on doing, focusing their attention on informing consumers about food waste. Then came the next step starting to design the project that the team will eventually implement, as Joe explained. To do this, we will describe a theory of change. A theory of change lays out how and why your project will address a problem to achieve a desired outcome. So the food team's desired outcome is consumers not overbuying food and not discarding imperfect food items like ugly fruit or dented cans. Basically, not doing things that lead to food waste. The food team's theory of change, or at least a working version of it, goes like this. If we produce educational tools and materials on food waste and consumption, then the amount of food waste will change because of educated consumers. So that's the plan, a campaign to reduce food waste among consumers. And now the food team has to implement that project. And the fascinating thing about this whole process 
The thing I learned most from doing the problem tree and following another team go through the same steps is that being intentional, thinking through what project you choose, is extremely important. I'm the kind of person who likes to make a decision about doing something and worry later about explaining why I'm doing that thing. You know, act now, figure out the hard stuff later. That's not at all how urban-rural action teaches teams to make decisions. This is what we learn. What project you choose depends on the goals you have and the causal assumptions you make about how your project will lead you to your goal. The food team's goal is quite manageable given the limited time they have together. But what kind of goals, what types of interventions are possible when there's a lot more time and a lot more resources? To answer that, let's take a trip to the farm where Greta works in rural West Edmonston, New York. On this Saturday in late October, Greta grabs a knife and a bucket and walks outside to raised beds to harvest some bok choy. She brings the veggies inside the barn to the wash and pack station, where Ben Tyler, the farm's project manager, gets a look at the harvest. Ooh, beautiful. Together, they prepare the bok choy, first by pulling off the outer leaves, then by trimming the inner leaves. Don't trim them down too fast, because they will rapidly shrink as you trim. They trim the roots and use rainwater to wash the vegetables. They do some final trimming. Okay, bok choy is done. They do a quick examination. Uh, I think it's still so it, Yeah, it's, it's not, not actually rotted. rotted, it's just what it looks like. And then it's on to the next vegetable. Okay, so let's see. Oh, could you do kale and collards? Okay. As she cleans and prepares the produce, Greta makes a connection to what she's been working on with the food team. It's sort of, it's very relevant to the project. Because there's a lot of waste. Because our, yeah, because our project topic is about reducing food waste. We've chosen to look at consumer standards and, like, why people don't want to eat ugly produce and, like, people throwing away produce that is... uh, I love it. Yeah, or or not just produce, but food in general that's fine. Um, As they chat, Greta and Ben are preparing all sorts of veggies, some of which are spotless and others of which aren't perfect looking. They pack them into boxes. This week's box has bok choy, kale, collards, carrots, parsnips, leeks, pumpkin, butternut squash, red lettuce, chives, and potatoes. These are the types of veggies that are popular at grocery stores and farmers markets in wealthy urban and suburban areas. But Greta and her colleagues at Unadilla Community Farm also want to get healthy food to people in lower income urban and rural areas who need it but often don't have access to it. The boxes they're putting together are going to people's homes and the surrounding rural communities. This area is classified by the USDA as a low-income, low-access, rural food desert. That means there's limited supplies to fresh, affordable food. Most of my neighbors have to drive 40 minutes um, to get to Walmart to get their groceries. Despite the fact that they're literally surrounded by farmland. The irony of that, that, you know, I live on a farm and that all around me are farms, but they're not farms that grow food that people can eat directly. You know, they're farms that are growing um, GMO corn and soy for animal feed or for biofuel or for processed foods, for example. The Veggie Box delivery program provides fresh seasonal fruits and veggies grown on the 12-acre farm to dozens of families. They pay what they can afford to. Greta lives in a rural area now, but she grew up in an urban area. Her parents started an organic food store in the early 1990s in Pittsburgh. She spent a lot of time in that store growing up. 
so she's quite familiar with how food is grown, where it travels, and where it ends up. In Greta, she keeps coming back to the problem of food waste. We actually do have enough calories per person per day in the world for everyone. It's just not equally proportioned, and so much of it goes to waste. That waste happens on the farm, at the supermarket, and at the dinner table. The bottom line is that healthy food often doesn't reach people in places where food insecurity is most common. And this is the perfect example of a problem that affects people in both urban and rural communities. We heard how Greta's farm is helping people in rural New York have access to healthy food. There's also a great need for healthy food in less affluent urban areas, the places without a Whole Foods every few miles, in organic farmers markets every weekend. Shanae, the food team member we heard from earlier, lives outside of Memphis, a city where food deserts are a big problem. Specifically in communities of color, people have to travel quite a distance to get to a grocery store, and even then, the store may not sell much fresh produce. So I think there's a healthy food desert, um, if you will, in this urban space, because a lot of the food options, there's access, but it's not access to healthy food. Shanae says there's an opportunity for people who produce food in rural areas to help. The question is, are they you know, able to produce food in order that's going to make it to these urban environments, make it to suburban environments? Are we talking? Are, we, are there a partnership? Is there a collaboration? So I think that's another piece that comes out of when we look at food waste too, adding this relationship between waste and well as relationship between these two communities of how they could be helping and serving one another. A number of organizations have stepped up to reduce food waste and bring food to communities that need it the most. Urban-Rural Action is connecting these groups with universities in urban and rural areas. How is that collaboration working? More on that coming up. If group one's ready to go. Yeah, we're um, ready. I can share my screen. Perfect. What you're hearing here is one of many final presentations from college students taking place online this fall. But there's something different about this one. Each group is made up of undergrads from two schools, yep, Wilson good. College in Franklin County, Pennsylvania, and Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Um, okay, so we're team one. Um, so our partner was Fulton Farms, and we were doing agricultural interventions in rural Pennsylvania. For their project, students in this first group made brochures about how to access healthy local food. They also created a college club to help retrieve food that might otherwise be wasted. The plan is to donate that food to the Gleaning Project of South Central Pennsylvania. It's an organization that collects food to distribute to people who are food insecure. Another group worked directly with the Gleaning Project, creating pamphlets on these topics. Food access points in South Central PA, ways to reduce food waste at home, food waste and environmental impact, what the Gleaning Project is, how to get involved with the Gleaning Project, and recipes to utilize fresh produce and prevent waste. A third group helped do research for the FarmLink Project which connects farms with food banks. And a fourth group created a database of contacts at Whole Foods and Aramark. We mainly wanted to try to engage them to donate with uh, Food Rescue more, um, engage if and how much they already donated and if there was room for improvement for that donation, and find out how to motivate them to donate more. Students at Georgetown and Wilson spent the semester analyzing causes and effects of food injustice in urban D.C. and rural Franklin County. These students, they're in separate courses, but each week, everyone met jointly on Zoom for an hour, and they collaborated outside of class. Each group worked with a community organization to design the projects you just heard about. 
Here's Randall, the Georgetown professor who teaches the environmental justice course. Connecting students across these different places, um, having them collaborate in small teams, working with community partners. There's so much rich learning that emerges in this. It's the second straight year that students at these schools have collaborated. Urban Rural Action helped to connect the two professors who teach the service learning courses. Joe and others from the organization have been involved in the partnership. One of them was Logan Grubb, a senior at Gettysburg College and a program manager for Urban Rural Action. Logan says that once students learned about food waste and food insecurity, they were motivated to help educate people about the problems and potential solutions. And a lot of the projects that they're working on, even if they're kind of working with an urban partner or rural partner, are a lot of times like, let's create this pamphlet and then put it out to people because they just really aren't aware of the things um, or of the food that might necessarily be going to waste that could be going somewhere else. Julie Raleigh, a sociology professor at Wilson College, teaches students in her food, culture, and society course about the distance that locally grown food travels. So they're kind of grappling with, wow, here we're producing so much food, and yet our folks here are food insecure, and yet what we're producing is going to these kind of urban areas. And why is it going there? Well, because a farmer can sell their really fantastic produce from South Central Pennsylvania for a lot more at a market in D.C., than they can in uh, a South Central Pennsylvania farmer's market. And then just to close the loop there, then the food from rural Pennsylvania makes it to urban D.C., but it doesn't get distributed well in D.C. Uh, As we know, D.C. is a famously bifurcated city with kind of endemic food deserts um, defining a large swath of the city. So within that space, you have dislocated communities that are not availing themselves of this food that starts in a place that seems like, as Julie said, kind of a breadbasket, like it's producing a bounty, but there's uh, high degrees of food insecurity in Franklin County, and there's high degrees of food insecurity in urban D.C. as well. Students in both classes learn about the underlying reasons why people do or don't have access to healthy food. You know, who has the kind of economic power to get it? Again, it comes down to an issue, not just of the urban-rural divide, but of social class and, you know, this sort of uh, structural inequality in the society. This fall, students in both classes discussed how COVID-19 has led to increased food insecurity. The pandemic has really sort of exposed some of the structural problems that are just always part of what's happening in the country, whether or not that's, you know, sort of Black Lives Matter and racial justice or food justice. Randall says he's hoping COVID-19 makes people realize that food insecurity is a systemic issue, not a personal failure. Even so, making meaningful changes to the system is easier said than done. Right. I mean, I think there might be agreement that, oh, well, we should have a food drive or there should be a food bank for people. People should be able to eat. The soup kitchen is a good thing. But I think asking those structural questions, right, why can't everybody buy food? I mean, that is a difficult kind of nut to crack. Randall says one thing he's learned from this collaboration is bringing people from urban and rural places to the table or at least on Zoom, to talk about these types of issues is an important first step. When we do this, when we talk to each other, 
um, in these configurations, we find fairly quickly that we actually do have a lot in common, that issues that sometimes do seem very separated by geography or other demographic factors um, are less so when we actually begin to share and compare notes. But how do you actually get people to talk to each other, to compare notes, especially when there are real disagreements about issues, and those issues are more contentious than food justice? How do you teach people from urban and rural areas to truly listen to each other? Urban Rural Action has a methodology for doing this. More on that coming up in episode three.